this place for us to come together and just be real with each other, just love each other um, through all the sorrows, through all the trials, um, and through all of the blessings that you give us. Um, I pray now for Chris as he comes to give the message to us. Speak to us through him, Lord, um, that we can learn to love you and love each other all the more. Your son's name. Amen. Thank you, team. Um, Okay, so we are, uh, tonight it's rated R for RUF. Uh, But no, we are going to talk about sexuality uh, in the Bible tonight. And uh, you can laugh, and sex is actually supposed to be funny. Um, Supposed to be hilarious. Um, But, you know, as you think about this subject... Um, one of the things I want to point out is a lot of times it's not talked about in the church much. Um, when it is talked about, it's typically, um, don't do that, you know, and uh, cover that up. And it's usually a very um, uh, a view that, that you would almost think that, um, well, maybe sex is dirty, maybe sex is bad. Uh, maybe sex is wrong. And so I want to try to adjust some of that thinking tonight. But in the college spectrum here at the University of Maryland, obviously, um, you know, this is a big subject. And on the one side, um, college students are either tempted to either hook up and be sex crazed during their time here at the University of Maryland to sow their wild oats. And in the back of their mind, think at one at one at some point I will. I will calm down and I will uh, straighten up and I will find a young lady or a guy and get married. Um, But during this time, this is the time to have fun and that's just accepted. Um, Maybe you grew up in a conservative uh, Christian home and where this subject was not talked about much. Maybe uh, you never had that birds and bee conversation with your mom or dad. Um, Maybe they were afraid to do that. Maybe this subject was never breached much at church or in your youth ministry, or you've never heard a sermon about sexuality. Uh, and to some extent, I want to try to do that uh, today. Uh, I want to just kind of do a, a brief kind of survey of what the Bible has about sex, se- says about sex. Um, maybe at some point you've never had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and you're curious but don't have the slightest idea how to get over the hurdles of friendship, dating, and marriage. And it seems like the, even the thought about that and, and having sex is like Mount Everest to you. It may, it may just seem like a million miles away and you have no idea like even how to begin that journey. And so we're going to look at this and really it's... Uh, It's basically, I'm just going to talk about these, try to talk about these three points. I'm going to hop right into it. But God's glorious and exalted view of sexuality. Uh, Also the fall and how that has affected our sexual lives and our sexual selves. And then how the gospel is really a picture, uh, a glorious picture of of sexuality. Because that's really what the Bible kind of talks about. And, uh, and so the first thing is this, and I've got some, there's going to be some verses that we'll just look at as we go. 
But the first thing is God created sex and has an incredibly high view of it. I mean, He's the one that invented it. Uh, he's the one that invented the body and said it's good. And not just that, but it's very good. And so if you look at Genesis 2, and 25, and we've read this several times this, this semester, but here's, here's where it was first created. Here's where it was ordained. Here's where it was initiated by God. It's all His idea. And so He says this, So the Lord God created a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while He slept, He took one of His ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And that rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, He made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so here it is, marriage, the commitment, uh, and also the beautiful sexual relationship that is all together in this passage. This idea of hold fast is the covenant, the commitment that we talked about last week. And then right with that is they shall be one flesh. Okay? Now that signifies... Uh, now it sounds like, well, that's the sex. You know, that must be the intercourse. They come together and it's one flesh. And it is that, but it's so much more. Because uh, biblically, biblically speaking, um, when a couple, a man and wife, come together in that committed relationship... It's not just about the sex. That's part of it. But it's really about becoming one flesh in all areas of life. It's saying, I am one flesh with you socially. I am one flesh with you emotionally. I am one flesh with you financially and materially. We're sharing everything together. And also, we're one flesh physically, sexually together. So the sexual relationship, this high and exalted view of God is built into the commitment of the entire life of commitment with that one person, the one flesh. Ultimately, what God is saying is that bodies, these things that we inhabit, are good. And, uh, and He says they were naked and unashamed. There's a pic- this is a picture of really innocent delight as they gazed upon one another. I mean... The man breaks in the song. I mean, this is the first poetry in the Bible. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I mean, he's excited. It's poetry. It's music. It's song. He sees Eve and he can't believe it. It's amazing. He's delighted with her physically. Um, And we know that at the end of this passage, when God created the man and the woman, He didn't just say it was good. And I think my brother mentioned this. But on the sixth day... He said it was very good. The pinnacle of His creation, the man and woman, the king of queen uh, of, of the creation, naked together in the garden, delighting in one another in all aspects of life. And God is saying it's very good. Jesus appeals to the same verse in Matthew. Okay, I don't think we put this up here, but He says in Matthew 19, the Pharisees were asking Him, and He, they, he said, hey, is it okay to divorce for any reason? And Jesus refers back to this passage at the beginning of creation where He said, you know, the two shall become one flesh and what God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus, again, He's appealing to the beauty of the marriage commitment and the man and the woman coming together. And He mentions the fact that they were one flesh. He's highlighting the marriage oneness, the commitment, 
the exclusive nature of sexual intimacy? Because the Pharisees were wondering, oh, we can just, can't we just divorce our wives for any and every reason? And Jesus is saying, no, that's not how it's meant to be. Uh, it's supposed to be this amazing um, connection and the one flesh, sexual intimacy, and total commitment for life. Paul highlights sexual relationship in uh, 1 Corinthians 7.2. Okay, this is pretty radical stuff here. Um, he says this, because of the temptations of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Sounds like prison. Uh, and likewise, the, you know, the, the conjugal visits. Uh, and likewise, the wife to her husband. But the wife does not have authority over, over, her, over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, what Paul is saying here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is that the husband and the wife do not, their bodies are not their own. They're the Lord's, but they're also one another's in this one flesh aspect. That they don't have rights over themselves because now they're one flesh. And so the wife belongs to the husband, the husband belongs to the wife. It's this beautiful music and this beautiful uh, love and sacrifice to one another of their sexual selves to one another uh, for mutual enjoyment and for serving and loving uh, one another. So this is really radical because in that time and day, the first century Rome, uh, I mean, this is unheard of because it was the man who was the one who kind of had control over women in that culture. And women and the wife was for children and for status and for marriage. But if he wanted to have sexual fulfillment and the thrill, he would go outside of that and with a mistress, that sort of thing. So in this passage, it's really radical because... What Paul is saying is no. <laughs> the woman has just as much right for sexual expression in the marriage that the man does. It's not just the man's game. But it's for both the husband and the wife for this mutual enjoyment of sexual pleasure. That's what he's saying here. That is radical in first century Christianity. That Christianity has this incredibly high view of the body and of the sexual self. It's a radical view. And we see this really elsewhere all through the Scriptures, uh, especially in Proverbs and Song of Solomon. So we're going to look at a few verses there. And in Proverbs 5, for instance, okay, it's getting a little R-rated here, uh, we have this, this passage where the father is uh, telling his son to really, uh, that he should be about enjoying the wife of his youth because he is being tempted uh, by the adulterous woman. Okay? And he says this, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed 
and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? And really, in, in the Hebrew here, these ideas of cistern and the flowing water and the springs, they're really all images, poetical images for the sexual organs, the woman's sexual self. And, and water and flowing water. I mean, you don't have to think too hard about that. But, that is, but, but he's saying this is good. He's saying, son, you're to share this with your wife. Your wife alone and not the forbidden woman of the street. Uh, Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, okay, is really just one big, huge, um, it's almost like the marriage night poem, okay, the wedding night poem for King Solomon and his bride. And so within that poem, you have the story of the, the woman and the man's love for one another. And in the church, it's interesting because a lot of people, a lot of commentators have said the Song of Solomon, they've kind of shut it down because it just, it's too expressive uh, sexually. And they've tried to say, well, this is just an allegory. It's just an allegory of, of, of the Lord's love for His people. Okay? And uh, this is, you know, this is not real. Let's not, let's not go too far with this. But these are some of the ways that, you know, church historians and theologians have kind of taken these very racy passages and they've shut them down and made them, um, you know, again, kind of push sex and, and the, the sexual relationship in the marriage kind of apart and, and, and made us feel like it's wrong, made us feel like it's dirty, made us feel like we shouldn't be talking about this. But God is talking about it. And so here's what he says. Uh, this is chapter 7, 6 to 9. Um, and this is the, the Solomon um, expressing his delight with seeing uh, his wife. He says, How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all our delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best of wine. This is the sexual relationship. This is the intoxication of the physical relationship that's going on. And again, going back to, well, what about the woman? Is this all just about the man making the uh, uh, advances into lovemaking? Well, no. Because uh, Tremper Longman talks about how the woman is actually the main um, speaker in this Song of Solomon. And she's actually the one that initiates the relationship and the sexual relationship in many aspects of the poem. Okay, now it's radical. Okay, now we're we're beyond first century. We're now back 2,000 years before Jesus, or or 1,000 years before Jesus, okay? Here's what she says to him. And she's captivated by his appearance. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, 
And this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Now, the Hebrew scholars have said that this polished ivory is really, we don't have to think too far about this, is really a picture of a man's erect penis. Okay? Polished ivory. Okay. Uh, be decked with sapphires. Okay? I mean, this is what the Hebrew scholars are saying. But in a lot of the commentators, they won't even like bring it out. You got to read Tremper Longman, and then you'll see how he uh, talks about this uh, passage. Again, this is uh, nothing to be ashamed of. This is how God has made people. It's how He's made uh, the man and the woman for one another. Uh, the point is, again is God's created our bodies. They're good. They're very good. The sexual union in the marriage is what God has intended, and it's for us to be excited about. And it's and it's a good thing uh, to be to desire um, in that. And so, in this Song of Solomon's chapter eight, really is the consummation of the wedding. If you would like to go home tonight later, you could read that um, chapter eight, Song of Solomon. But the, the the summary here is God is the one who's created your body. And so the sexual attractiveness um, and these desires and these hormones and all that, those sorts of things that you feel, these are good things. Okay? This is how God has made you. Okay? And it's good. Um, I, I once heard uh, this professor uh, and writer, a guy by the name of William Romanowski, and he's kind of a pulp culture analysis guy. And I heard him at a conference doing a, a lecture on sexuality. And uh, I just thought it was so funny. I still remember it. But he, he kind of gave this story about, can you, can you imagine God being there, you know, thinking about this, like thinking about creating the man and the woman. And he was like saying, oh, they're just going to love me for this. And he takes like about 10 billion nerves and he just starts packing them into like one inch square of your body. And it's like, they're going to love me for this, man. They're going to love... Anyway, so... Um, but I mean, that is what, you know, God is... God has created this, um, and it's and it's a good gift. Um, and so the Lord says it's very good. Now, uh, what happened? What has happened? Well, just like the rest of creation, in Genesis chapter three, we we have the fall uh, into sin, and we have the separation. And so, every area of life is affected by the fall. You know, our intellect. Our spiritual life with God is separated. Our physical bodies are beginning to uh, disintegrate and die. Our social relationships are affected and divided. Adam and Eve are arguing with one another, blame shifting. There's no peace. There's no harmony. They're hiding from one another. And as well, the sexual relationship as well is affected and falls as well. Every good gift that God gives us now uh, becomes something that we can idolize, make into an idol, and worship. The whole framework of life is changed when the fall into sin happens. And so these really, really good gifts of God become these ultimate, ultimate gods that we worship. And so instead of having a right perspective of everything in life, and sexuality especially, because that is so much a part of who we are. It's, it's, we can't get away from who we are. We're in this body. And all of our hormones and everything else is racing and raging, and, and 
And, uh, and so sin, uh, the sin of Adam, is in each one of us. And this issue of sexuality is, is also very distorted. And Satan, as well, likes to especially distort it and do all kinds of things with it. So what I'm going to do now is kind of talk about uh, the fall, and ha- which has brought a wrong view of sex, number one, and also a wrong direction for sex. So the first thing is, how has the fall brought a wrong view? And I've kind of mentioned this briefly, but in the church, you know, one of the ways we've had a wrong view is we've again made God seem like some sort of prude. And we've uh, been silent about the subject and we have not lifted up and we've said basically that, well, sex is dirty. And it comes really from these Gnostic ideas. And, uh, and if you're familiar with like some of your ancient history, Gnosticism was some of the, uh, the, the religious views that were going on really around the first century as well. Um, and also this idea of dualism, basically meaning that um, they, they saw the body and the physical as evil, dirty, sinful, base. And the spirit and the mind and the intellect were the things that were highly to be praised and sought after. And so this dualism happened of the body and the nature being evil, being bad, and the spirit and the mind being those things that people pursued. There was a church father. This stuff crept into the, into the church. A guy by the name of Ambrose of Milan. And he described the body not as something good, something God has created, but instead as a tattered garment of the soul. He said that lifelong celibacy is the only thing that separates us from the beasts. So you see what he's doing. The body is a it's just a tattered garment. Um, celibacy is, is, is what separates us from the beasts. And so he is really um, looking at the whole sexual self as something that is wrong, that is evil. These ideas are not biblical. Uh, Lauren Winner, I tell you, if I could recommend a book right here. It's called Real, Chast- or Real Sex, The Naked Truth About Chastity by Lauren Winner. And I'm going to read a portion of that, but here's what she says. She makes this observation that Christians and Eastern religion, like Hinduism, that sort of thing, are very different. Christians do not, like Hindus, aspire to an eternity in which we have finally escaped our troubling bodies. Rather, we look for a hereafter in which our bodies are resurrected and glorified. I mean, this is the difference between Christianity and every world religion. We, God, uh, Jesus came in a body. He died in that body. He went to the grave. He was raised, not just into His Spirit, but into a resurrected body. And He will be inhabiting that resurrected body for all eternity. When we go to heaven, we will be able to look and see the scars on His hand and the scars in His side because He inhabits that body. Uh, for us. And we likewise will also have a resurrected body. So the body is important. Uh, and it's been, it's, it's been taught all through the ages. The church at some point forgets about this and goes off into heresy. 
Uh, but what we have from the Scriptures constantly is the fact that the body is good. That God has created us as embodied people. Our bodies are good. We celebrate them. We feed them. We take care of them. One day, God will ultimately restore us with a new resurrected body. Another view that's out there... Oh, actually, so I wanted to read this story about some friends of hers. Um, this will take a little bit of time, but I thought it was telling because this is a couple, a Christian couple, grew up in the church, and it talks about what happened on their wedding night. And she's kind of... She knows this couple, and she kind of knows their history, and they were, they were, I believe, virgins um, before they got, uh, before they got married. And, uh, but also, too, uh, you'll see in here that they kind of had really difficult views about then making the switch from, uh, chastity and saying no to then the sexual expression that is to be delighted in marriage. Here's what she says. I want to tell you a story about my friends Charlie and Suzanne. They should have had a picture-perfect wedding night. They had both grown up in strong Christian families, and they had both determined as high schoolers to to save sex for marriage. They met their senior year of college and were engaged eight months later. And they dutifully refrained from having sex before they were married. In fact, before they got engaged, they did not... They did no more than kiss. Their honeymoon was to be spent at a quaint cottage in the countryside. Friends and family had suggested they go to Paris or Rome, but Suzanne laughed and said, We'll go to Paris later uh, when we might want to spend some time at museums and bistros. In other words, they'd waited for sex and, and assumed they wanted to spend most of their honeymoon in bed. But their wedding night was, in Suzanne's words, a disaster. Uh, though Charlie was eager to make the, uh, the best of it, she simply did not want to have sex. Uh, I did have sex, of course, because that's what you do. But she wasn't happy about it. Nor did she want to have sex much, much during the first three years of marriage until they started meeting with a counselor employed by their church. I knew there would be a learning curve with sex, says Suzanne, but I thought that meant learning about mechanics. What I really had to learn was that sex is okay. That it is okay to desire my husband. Rather than spending our unmarried years stewarding and disciplining our desires, we have become ashamed of them. This is what Lauren writes. We persuade ourselves that the desires themselves are horrible. This can have real consequences if we do get married. We spend years guarding our virginity, but find upon getting married that we cannot just flip a switch. Now that sex is licit or sanctioned, even blessed by our community, we are stuck with years of work and sometimes therapy to unlearn a Gnostic anxiety about sex, to learn instead that sex is good. That's a sad story. How do we, how do we break from that? Well, I think we break from that by, again, uh, resting in what the Scriptures say about this and realizing that it is a good gift of God. And, and be praying about this. Be praying about your, your future sexual lives. Um, that, that God would bless you in those things. Now, another, another false view is sex is just a biological appetite. Okay, many in our culture would say that. I mean, that's kind of the current view of, I would say, unbelieving culture. It's just like food. We need to partake whenever our biological clock says we're hungry. 
Uh, it's just an appetite. So it's dangerous to repress it. We'll, we'll starve if we don't have sex, won't we? We'll die if we don't have sex. Uh, we might feel like that, but guess what? You won't die. Um, and, and then we get into this, the, the whole college hookup culture. And um, I can post this article on the Facebook group. It's a little, it's a little racy, but there's a woman uh, by the name of Hannah Rosen. And she wrote in the Atlantic magazine, I guess, last month. And she went and she interviewed um, a lot of Yale co-eds about their sex lives and basically about the hookup culture on the campus. And here's how one woman I interviewed explained what both men and women want. Quote, we want a relationship of freedom. The freedom to be there for each other and available sexually when it suits the both of us. And also emotionally when it suits the both of us. We want it to be fun, maybe involve some dates and long talks over coffee. But we certainly don't want these, quote, relationships to be entered into with an expectation of long-term or to get in the way of the other important things in our lives. Compatibility isn't even all that important. Amusement, affection, affirming attention, sexual fulfillment, the ever-elusive fun. That's what we're after. We're putting ourselves first. Some might call that selfish. We call it smart and independent and secure. I mean, this is, this is really the current view of a lot of people that sex is just an appetite. I can have it when I want. It's not going to have any consequences. Um, and it's going to get in the way of my career path. So I really don't want to have a real relationship or a real commitment or really love someone and go through the emotional struggles and everything that it takes and the work that a relationship takes. I just want to have, when I'm hungry, I'm going to get, get some. And then uh, when I'm not, I'm going to just live my life and do my thing. And this woman, Rosen, ends her comments. This is sad, but uh, she says, seems pretty respectful to me, even fun. This is, this is what you're in. This is what we're all in. This is, this is 2012, University of Maryland. Um, this is uh, the life that's all around you. Um, the fall as well has brought a wrong direction. Uh, for sex. Sex has become uh, not about the other person and not about your spouse, not about fulfilling their desires, serving them, loving them, encouraging them, blessing them. It's, it's really turned directions and it's been about me. What can I get about, out of it? Um, how can I be fulfilled? How can I reach orgasm? How can it bless me? How can it be powerful for me? And so... This is where we go to the scriptures and we see what the Lord says and how sex has really been distorted by sin. And again, because we're sinners, um, our sexual lives will be distorted in multiple areas. And, uh, and so this, again, is a little bit of a, a broad brush of some sexual sin that Paul mentions. Uh, in Ephesians 5.3, he says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Uh, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking. In Galatians 5.19, there's another list. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, goes on, talks about orgies and things like these. And so as you read the Bible, 
<laughs> it's a very real book. Sexual sin is all over it. I mean, there's incest. There's there's rape. Um, there's adultery. There's murder. There's cover up. There's uh, a wo- there's a man sleeping with his mother. Um, I mean, you name it. It's in there. There's bestiality. Uh, in in Leviticus, talks about don't have sex with animals. Uh, I mean, everything's mentioned in there. Um, and just to define some of these things, the, the word sexual immorality is interesting. In the Greek, it's porneia. It's the Greek word porneia, which is where we get pornography from. And so that word is used about 55 times in the New Testament, porneia. Um, we'll get to pornography in a second. Uh, but this is really the umbrella term that would include all kinds of sexual sin that, that's mentioned elsewhere in the Scripture. So adultery. Okay, simply adultery is a married person having sex with someone that's not your husband or wife. And that's literal, physical, relationship, sexual activity, intercourse, being naked with one another, etc. Fornication is adultery, but with it's, it's unmarried persons having sex with someone not your spouse. So two unmarried persons uh, having sex. Incest, having sex with someone in your family. Father with child, etc. Um, homosexuality, having sex with someone of the same sex, is mentioned in Romans 1 and also in 1 Corinthians 6 9, 1 Timothy 1. Both men to men and women to women. Uh, orgies are mentioned, group sex. Uh, sexual lust. Now we're getting under the surface. You know, Jesus said it's not just sexual adultery that's wrong you've heard that it said do not you know um, do not commit adultery but i say to you uh, anyone who looks on a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart and so jesus takes it from the physical action to boom down here inside the heart for everybody to really convict everybody that it's not just people that can um, keep their zipper up Okay, but it's for people that have wrong thoughts about other people and are undressing people that you're just as guilty. You're just as big of a sinner as all these other sins that are mentioned. Porn, and this kind of leads to that, sexual lust, pornography. Um, obviously, you probably know it's a multi, multi-billion dollar industry. And, uh, you know, just with the click of a mouse or, or a computer app, you can see... Anything you want to see. And for free. And why is it so bad? Why is it so harmful? Why is it so disturbing? I mean, number one, you have the people that are in the industry that we tend to objectify and say, this is not a real person. This is not somebody's daughter. This is not somebody's you know, sister. This is not somebody's child. Uh, this is not somebody's wife. Or mother, you know, this is just an object to lust after. Uh, we separate, we, we we separate the people uh, from who they really are and the dignity of being made in the image of God. Um, but it's it also um, just does so much damage to our own psyches and our own minds and our own hearts because you know the thing about sin is it changes us too when we commit sin. When we can commit sinful actions, it just doesn't like uh, have no effects. 
But there's a, there's a, it's a cause and effect universe. And so it affects the way you look at people. It affects the way you look at women. It affects the way you, you judge people. And if your mind is formed by those images, then when you look at other people, you're going to be um, judging them by those things. And this is why it's so harmful. Um, uh, that the mind, uh, just like exercise, you know, when your muscles are trained, your mind and your body and your, your brain and your eyes and all that kind of stuff, there's things that formed. Uh, a sexual thrill by, vi- by visual... And there's been like studies about this. When you are visually um, aroused, it does things chemically to you. Endorphins and so forth are released. And this can create um, a situation where now the same image will not get you aroused. You'll have to go bring it up a notch. I mean, this is how pornography enslaves people. Okay, and so uh, there's a guy by the name of Harry Schaumburg wrote a, an excellent book about basically sexual addiction. Christian guy, he spoke to all of us RUF campus ministers, and he talks about um, pornography, especially is a form of false intimacy. That when we see the image, it feels like maybe that's, and this is for guys and girls alike. Okay, because because girls have the same same trouble in these issues as well, but. The, what happens is you're you're having a false intimacy instead of loving a real person with a real relationship and real commitment. This is a person on a screen who's probably been airbrushed and whatever to look a certain way, and uh, and so we are instead of instead of uh, developing a real relationship, we are sidestepping that the pain and the struggle and the difficulty of a real relationship and we're going taking this easy path of false intimacy which really leads to nowhere it really leads to more bondage and into into death got to talk about masturbation too um what about that is that in the bible actually it's not in the bible um there's a story about this guy by the name of Onan. He was called to bear children with his deceased brother's wife, but instead he pulled away in the sexual act or coitus interruptus. Never said that in a sermon. Had to get it in there. And he spilled his semen on the ground. It was a sin because he did not continue his brother's line and have children. This was not masturbation. But masturbation gets at the heart of what sex is not for. Because the whole purpose of sex is the fulfillment and the joy of your spouse. Uh, it's, it's to be other-centered. And whereas masturbation is all about self-fulfillment and doing that action to get your own arousal. But it's just you. A theologian by the name of John White calls it solo sex. Think about that. It's pretty telling. But that's what it is. That's what it is. And so, it's a sin because it's all about you. And typically, it's all also, you're thinking about something else. You're thinking about another person. And so, masturbation does none of these things. It doesn't, it it's, it's becomes just a selfish act. Um, there was a study by the CDC, 
some years back, they found that 90% of people masturbated and the other 10% were lying. Uh, that's from Tim Keller, sorry. Uh, conclusion. We're all messed up sexually. Um, I, I tried to be very broad, kind of broad brush these things, but all of us struggle uh, in this area. Uh, we're all broken, you know, and, and different people have different issues that they struggle with. Um, and uh, you know what? This is this is why we need Jesus. You know, this is why we need the gospel because God has this high and exalted view of our sexuality and what that's supposed to be and how it glorifies Him. And sin has affected us, and it's so deep in who we are. And the beauty of the gospel is is that there is hope. <laughs> There's hope to be set free from ourselves. There's hope to be set free from the bondage bondages that we feel, whether it's pornography or, or masturbation or sexual hookups or same-sex attraction or whatever it is that's outside of what God has called us to. There is release and there is a hope. And that's really in the picture of the Gospel of grace. And, you know, all, all semester during this you know, gospel-driven relationships, I've tried to make one point. <laughs> and that is, it, it, you've got to get your eyes on Jesus first. That in order for the horizontal relationships to work, the friendships to work, the sex to work, we have to be released from ourselves and know that we are loved by Jesus first. Like, that's first and foremost. I know that sounds counterintuitive or weird, but, you know, what Jesus wants is ourselves. And he wants, and, and we cannot free ourselves from the bondage of sexual sin ourselves. It's too powerful. It has its grip too much. And in order to be released from the idolatry that we give to sexuality, we have to have our eyes focused on a greater and more beautiful Savior. You know, Jesus is that greater, beautiful Savior that died for us, that loves us, that went to the cross for us, that releases us and that fills us with joy. That's why Jesus is always saying, come to me if you're thirsty. Come to me if you need bread. Cry out to Him in the moments of your greatest temptations and He will give you release. He will give you relief in those, in those places. Um, and be embraced by others. This is why we need the body. This is why you need each other. This is why you need small groups. You need people praying for you, saying, texting you at the middle, in the middle of the night, saying, hey, I'm praying for you. How can I help you? Where are you? The body of Christ. Us, here in this room. We're to help one another. We're to embrace one another. We're to, to fight for our purity to, to serve Jesus. And so, um, I wanted to read a couple things here. But why does God? So why does God create the sexual union of bodies? I mean, I haven't really answered that question. Well, He did it to show His grace to us. Some some have said that sex between a man and a woman can be a sort of embodied, out of body experience. It's the most ecstatic, breathtaking, daring scarcely to be imagined look at the glory that is our future. Our future of being embraced and loved by the Lord of heaven and earth. That really, you know, the sexual relationship is supposed to be ultimately first about the fact that we can come and be loved by Jesus. That we can give our entire lives to Jesus and fall into His arms and be comforted by Him, be accepted by Him totally and fully. 
So therefore, the, the husband and wife, their sexual relationship is supposed to be an example of that. You know, just as Jesus uh, gave Himself for the church, you know, the husband is to give himself, serve, and lay down his life for the bride. The bride is to submit uh, to the husband as the church submits to Christ. So you have this this working of this union that's taking place. And, you know, the sexual act of the husband and wife is, is to basically be a picture of Jesus' love and acceptance of you. That's what it's supposed to be about. And that's why it grows and, and gives strength because here's someone, your spouse that you love and you're committed to and you're able to accept totally. And they're able to totally um, embrace you and accept you totally. That's the picture of married love and, and, and uh, beautiful sex. And it's really what the Gospel is all about. Because the Gospel is we can give everything to Jesus and He embraces us and He loves us. And He gives all to us. Let me read this last quote. When you get married, you make a solemn covenant with your spouse. The Bible calls your spouse your covenant partner. That day is a great day and your hearts are full, but as time goes out, there's a need to rekindle the heart and renew the commitment. There must be an opportunity to recall all that the other person means to you and to give yourself anew. Sex between a husband and a wife is the unique way to do that. Indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful uh, God-created way to give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely and permanently and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. Let me pray. Jesus, thanks for uh, being able to think through these things a little bit tonight. I know that was very brief and very fast. But would You use Your Word to... Meet us where we are in the issue of our of our own sexuality. Uh, would you um, heal us from the brokenness that we have in whatever whatever areas, Lord? We're all broken. We all need to be healed by you. We all need to um, have Jesus meet us where we are. And Father, would you bless our future marriages? Would you bless uh, our lives sexually uh, in the future, Lord? Would you? Uh, be so gracious and kind if, it, if it's Your will to be, that we're to be married. So Jesus, we lift all these things up to You in Your name. Amen.